0: Satisfy us with your love. Jesus, we praise you that you satisfy. That you say that you are the true and living water. Those who, who thirst should come to you and they'll never thirst again. We will be forever satisfied in you, Jesus. We praise you for that you would fill us by your spirit to, to run to you and be satisfied. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you guys can take a seat. Chris, thanks, man. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are a guest, uh, we're glad that you're here. And you picked a great weekend to join us because, like Pastor Justin said, get ready to clap. Today is our third birthday. So that's an exciting thing. <laughs> I got to be honest, you guys were way better than the four o'clock service. They totally missed my shameless plug for clapping there, okay? We had to, we had to do it over again. It's very embarrassing. Anyway, but uh, yeah, three years ago, we launched Center Church, and man, we love birthdays here because it's an opportunity to reflect on God's faithfulness over the last year. So when you came in, you should have found an annual report that was on your seat. Here's the thing. You can't put a number around everything that God did in and through our church last year. I mean, I'm sure that you have story after story of God's faithfulness. That's just our Attempt to say, man, here are some of the things that God did, some of the ways that we can praise the Lord and celebrate Him and His faithfulness to us. And what I want to do is I want to kind of share ways that God was faithful to us in four big buckets, okay? Four big areas that we saw God be faithful in our sending capacity, in our serving capacity, in our shepherding capacity, and in our seeding capacity, okay? So we'll start with that first one, our sending capacity. Guys, here's the thing God is a missionary God. Jesus is the kind of shepherd who leaves behind the 99 to go after the one lost sheep. And the scriptures tell us that there is a party in heaven every time that a sinner repents and trusts in Christ. And because of that, we believe that our sending capacity is more important than our seeding capacity. That our ability to equip you and inspire you and mobilize you to share the gospel out in the world is actually more important than how many people we have come and sit here on a Sunday. And we're committed to sharing the gospel locally, nationally, and globally. And I want to just share a couple of ways that that happened in 2021. Locally, we have a couple of missional communities, men who are actively week by week ministering to, not that slide yet, ministering to families who've been relocated from the Middle East to Charlottesville as refugees. These families where they used to live had no access to the gospel. It was illegal for them to become Christians. They've been relocated to Charlottesville, and because of the ministry of some of our MCs, those families who previously had no access to the good news of the gospel now are hearing the gospel proclaimed. Man, that is happening because of the work that our MCs are doing, that you are doing in our community Now we have other MCs, now you can put up the slide, we have other MCs that are ministering to the physical and the spiritual needs of the homeless population in our community. And and this is a picture, a screenshot of our city outreach group chat. And this is where different people can post physical, spiritual needs of those that they interact with. And it's a little bit hard to tell, but my favorite thing about this screenshot is all of the things that are highlighted yellow are people saying, stop Venmoing me money. I have enough, okay? It's like, we bought the book bag, now I have 40 extra dollars. That's how generous, man, our church is to say, man, we want to minister to the people in our community, and man, we're, we're so grateful for that. So that's just two ways of many that our MCs are ministering the gospel here locally. Um, nationally, the, the, the way that we do national missions is through church planting. So three years ago, we planted Center Church, and we are committed to being a church planting church, and this is pretty amazing. In three years, we have helped plant five churches in three states. Five churches in three states, so New Valley Church in Waynesboro, Virginia, Steel City Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Coastway Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Redeemer City Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and Grace Point Church, which is a collegiate focused church plant right here in Charlottesville. Man, we are passionate about passing the baton of the gospel on forward. We don't want to be a cul-de-sac in the Great Commission. We want to be a highway. And so we are committed to continually planting churches as long as we exist. And so we praise God for the work that we've done nationally. And globally, there are some really special things going on at Center Church. So last summer, we had two of our college students who spent their entire summer as missionaries in Serbia, We had another four college students who joined them as short-term missionaries for two weeks to partner with church planning teams in a city in Serbia. And right now, this is crazy, right now we have five people, five, that are in the application process to become long-term missionaries. Guys, that is not normal, okay? That's a lot. That is a lot of people for the size church that we are. And I'm like, why does everyone want to leave our church, you know? But it's like five people who are saying, man, I want to take the gospel to the nations. And we are so grateful for those five folks. And we are so excited to partner with them and to send them well. And at the end of 2021, through your generosity, we raised almost $50,000 for world missions through the Hold the Rope offering. Okay, so man, our sending capacity expanded in a very significant way in 2021, and I praise God for that, and I'm just excited to see him do even more because he is a missionary God. All right, but we also grew in our serving capacity, all right? Our serving capacity. In Mark 10:45, Jesus said this about himself. He said, for even the son of man, even I, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what that means is that if you are a follower of Christ, by definition, you have become a servant because Jesus is a servant. And I love the picture of this that we see in Mark chapter one. Jesus comes to Peter's house after synagogue and uh, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And the text says that, that Jesus goes into her room. He takes her by the hand, lifts her up from the bed and the fever left her. And the text says that she immediately began to serve Jesus and his disciples. Now, what a beautiful picture that in response to salvation, we serve. In response to what Christ has done for us, we want to serve him. But, you know, Jesus isn't staying at our house like he was at Peter's house. So how do we serve God today? Well, we serve God by serving people made in God's image. We serve God by serving people made in God's image. And I am so grateful to tell you that right now, as of right now at our church, we have 182 people, 182 of you who are actively serving on a weekend volunteer team. 182 people who are investing their time and their talent on Sundays to say, hey, I'll help park cars, I'll help set up, I'll help disciple the next generation in our kids' ministry, I'll lead worship, I'll be on the sound booth, man, I want to do my part to seeing the gospel go forward. We could not do what we do if it weren't for all of you serving and using your time and talents to glorify the Lord. So I just want to say thank you. I'm grateful for our serving capacity, and I'm excited to see that continue to grow. We also uh, grew in our shepherding capacity. So shepherding is basically how we care for one another and how we help one another grow at Center Church, and the primary vehicle for shepherding at our church is what we call missional communities. Okay, missional communities are groups of twelve to fifteen that gather all across our community on different nights of the week, and it's really how man the big church experience becomes a little bit smaller. And and here's something incre- incredible: in 2021, we planted six more missional communities. We had eight. We went from eight to 14 in a single year. Pastor Justin has been working, guys. He's been working hard, and right now. we have over 200 people actively engaged with 14 missional communities around our city, and we've got three new missional communities that are launching over the next month. Let me tell you the statistic that I am most proud of in our church. If you take the total number of people that typically come on a Sunday and you compare that with the total amount of people connected in our groups, we have about 80% of people that come on Sunday connected to one of our groups during the week. I know you're not a pastor, so you don't get this. That is incredible. Like most churches have like 40% of people connected to a group. So Pastor Justin is twice as good as most pastors. Okay, that is what that means. Yeah, Pastor Justin. So we are, oh, Sam, thank you for starting that clap from the back, man. I expect that in the sermon. Anyway, uh, so we are grateful for how our shepherding capacity has expanded. and, And all that leads to our seating capacity. And by that, I simply mean the people that we can seat and that can gather with us here on Sundays. And seating capacity matters because an open seat is an open invitation to discipleship. An open seat says, hey, there's a place for you to belong here. There's a place for you to be invested in. There's a place for you to grow. There's a place for you to discover and to deploy your gifts. And and the truth is you can't reach people that you can't seat. And you can't disciple and eventually send people that you can't seat. So seating capacity in many ways is the lid on your ministry. Well, by God's grace, we've grown. I mean, by God's grace, we've grown. You can see that on our annual report. And man, on our biggest weekends, we are simply out of space. We are out of seats in here and we are out of parking spots out there. You should have, you did see the four o'clock service. It was like, we got parking team people going, we're parallel parking people. we got people parking down by the mall. Like we got people parking everywhere. We're just out of space. God has blessed us with growth and we are out of space. And as we face that reality, there's really four options. Okay, These are, I'll just present them to you. Here are the four options. Number one, we could do nothing. We just do nothing. We can just kind of keep gathering. And I like preaching to full rooms, you know? So it's just like, I hope you can figure out the parking. And like, if you get here early, you get a seat, good luck. that's one option. Um, But for us, man, two of our values are that we love to reach the lost and we make disciples, not converts. And so for us, that's just not really an option. It's like, no, we don't want to turn people away. We want to keep making disciples here. So so that wasn't an option. So the second option was you can add more services. I think you add more services. And we tried that um, last year around January. We added a third service. And here's what we found. A 2.30 afternoon Sunday service is just not very practical or very attractive for most people. It's just not. And so what ends up happening is you have two services that are over full, one service is, that is under full, and the staff team is exhausted, okay? That's what happens. So a third service could maybe be a good temporary release valve, but it's, it's not really a, uh, a practical long-term solution. So the next option is to rent. A space, to, to rent a larger space on, on Sundays. And we have explored this one extensively. And I'm talking, if you have seen the space in town, I have talked to the owner, okay? Like dozens and dozens and dozens of these places. And man, here's what we found. A lot of places that used to rent to churches no longer do because of COVID. So for instance, we launched the church at St. Anne's Belfield School. They no longer rent to outside organizations because of COVID. So you've got that issue. Uh, the second issue is the places that will rent to churches oftentimes don't have every Sunday available. And so the center at Belvedere, which is this big kind of new 55 and better facility back here. It's a great space. They had, you know, they had an auditorium, but they're like, "Hey, we've only, it's only available two Sundays every month." And it's like, "Well, that's confusing." And now we're trying to communicate about the other two Sundays. Um, the third thing we found is that some places that were available every Sunday were prohibitively expensive. So, there is one hotel, and I'm telling you, it's not a very nice hotel, and they quoted me for meeting there on Sunday mornings for a year, $240,000 not to buy the hotel, to rent a little part of it. I was like, what, what world are you living in? So that wasn't a good option. And then, honestly, to create like an engaging worship experience where we're man, leading you to worship Christ, we're discipling kids well, doing all that, it, in a rental facility just takes a lot of investment of resources and of volunteer hours, all right? So we, we tried a lot of different options and nothing was working. And so that leads us to the, the fourth option, which is secure a permanent church home, okay? Secure a permanent church home. And we've been working on that for two years, I mean, since before COVID started, we've had a real estate agent looking for uh, a permanent church home, a place to call our first first home. And we have looked at a lot of options, and we just kept running into the same roadblocks. And it's this. Man, in, in our community, where do you find a facility with sufficient square footage, tall enough ceilings, enough parking, that we can afford, that isn't in the middle of nowhere, okay? So it's like, if you want to find land in Madison County, I can help you out, okay? But like, if you want, if we want to continue to do the ministry we're called to here, which is to reach the community, to also reach students, man, we didn't want to be like 75 miles from Charlottesville. And so we were looking, 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 and it, honestly, it was really, it's been really discouraging. And this past fall in October, we had a, a lead that I thought was good, and then it ended up falling through, and I was just really discouraged. And I remember the morning after that, man, having time with God, I just felt like this feels impossible. Like, it just feels like this is never going to happen. Like, it's impossible to get a church building here in Charlottesville. And so I just started praying, kind of out of desperation. I was just like, God, would you let me stand in front of our church on our third birthday and tell them that we have found our permanent church home? That's just what I started praying. And guys, we had no leads. Like, we didn't even have an iron in the fire. That was October. So October came and went nothing. November came and went nothing. Most of December came and went. I mean, we did hold the rope, raised $50,000 for mission, the whole thing. And then the week before Christmas, this property comes on the market for sale, and I think this could be it. Okay, it's a 10,000-square-foot building on 1.65 acres at the intersection of 29 North and Westfield Road. So you literally see it when you're driving south on 29 North. It's less than two miles from where we are right now. It's about three miles from the rotunda at UVA and it's near the intersection of 250 and 29 so it's easy to get to from really anywhere that you're coming from. And what I have in this manila folder is a signed contract of purchase for that building. So we're like a married couple who's had a bunch of kids and needs nice to buy a house, okay? That's like, that's like what we are. And, and I'm excited about this facility because it's going to help us do deep discipleship and wide mission. It's going to pour fuel on the fire of our mission. Let me be clear. A building is not the goal. A building has never been the goal. A building is a means to the goal, which is lives transformed by the gospel. That's why we like to call it a facility because it facilitates ministry, Um, Think of it like this. My daughter, Annie, uh, loves to ride her bike. Absolutely loves it. Loves pumping those pedals. And last summer, we realized that even though she was pumping her pedals faster than her brother James was, she was not going as fast as James was. And the reason was that James had a much bigger bike. And so we realized that. We said, oh, we need to get her a bigger bike. And so for her birthday, we we got her an appropriately sized bike. And now she pumps those pedals and goes way faster than James does, right? She does the same basic thing. She pumps those pedals, but a bigger bike helps her go further faster. Well, for us as a church, deep discipleship and wide mission are the pedals on our bike. And we've been pumping those pedals, and we're going to keep pumping those pedals. Guys, what this facility is, is it's a bigger bike, By God's grace, it's going to let us go further, faster. It's going to let us see, man, more sending, more serving, more shepherding, and more seeding, okay? And I I can't get into all the details now, much more to come, but but here's the bottom line. Man, to get this project over the goal line, we're going to need to raise $250,000 in one-time gifts over and above normal tithes and offerings by Easter. $250,000 by Easter. Here's the thing. I believe we can do that. And if we do, we're going to get to move into our permanent church home in the fall of 2022. We're going to get to kick off the fall in the building that God has opened the door for us to walk through. Okay, so we're going to share tons more over the next couple of weeks on how, man, we can all be involved in making that happen and, and where God is leading us in this season. But, but I just want to take some time to thank the Lord for all that he's done in 2021 and for this door that he has opened for us going forward. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for all the life change that we saw last year. We thank you for opening this door for a facility. And God, we do pray that, man, you just fill us with a passion uh, for Christ that would lead to deep discipleship and wide mission and that we would see more and more lives changed by the gospel. So, Lord, as we look at your word, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe what you have for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can take it out and you can type to or turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, so we're going to take a brief break from our series in Titus, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, and the reason is that today's our third birthday, and Acts chapter 2 records the church's first birthday, so I thought that would be appropriate to look at the church's first birthday on our third birthday, and we're going to be talking about the topic of vision, okay? We're going to be talking about the topic of vision, and you hear a lot about that word, so let me give you a simple definition that I find really helpful, okay? Vision is a picture of something in the future that produces passion in the present. It's a picture of something in the future that produces passion in the present. It's a a picture of your kids walking with God as adults. It's a picture of you and your spouse celebrating your 40th wedding anniversary. It's a picture of you walking across the stage at graduation. And the truth is, we all need vision because vision motivates us to make choices today that will produce our desire tomorrow. Vision motivates us to make choices today that will produce our desire tomorrow. And here's the thing, everyone is selling you a vision. Everyone is selling you a vision of the good life. Amazon is selling you a vision. Apple is selling you a vision. Target is selling you a vision. HGTV is selling you a vision. Your company is selling you a vision. Every movie we watch, all the music, music we listen to, every show that we stream, everyone is selling us a vision of the good life. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to get vision for our lives from Jesus' larger vision for his church. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to get vision for our lives from Jesus's larger vision for his church. And so what we're going to do today on our third birthday is look at the church's first birthday to see Jesus's vision for his church, and by application and implication, Jesus's vision for our lives today. So we're going to do a flyover of verses 1 through 41, and then we're going to kind of settle down in verse 42, okay? Look at verse 1 with me. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So Pentecost was a Jewish holiday that occurred 50 days after Jesus' resurrection and 10 days after he ascended into heaven. And at this point, there were about 120 disciples, people who had walked with Jesus, people who had seen Jesus crucified, seen him be speared through the side, seen him be buried, and then three days later interacted with him after he rose from the dead. One of my favorite interactions in the New Testament is when Jesus first appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, because they were freaking out and they thought he was a ghost, which is what all of us would be doing, right? And this is how Jesus responded. He said, see my hands and my feet, touch me and see it is I for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You see, it's important to recognize that Christianity is built on the truth claim that Jesus historically and objectively rose from the dead. You might not believe that truth claim, and there go you, you might not be a Christian, but that is what Christianity is built upon. You see, the early church did not go around preaching what they believed. The early church went around preaching what they heard and what they saw and what they touched. They didn't understand themselves as religious gurus. They understood themselves as witnesses. As say, this happened, we wouldn't be following this guy, giving up our livelihoods, putting our lives in danger, putting our families in danger, if this didn't actually happen. We can't help it, this guy just rose from the dead. So Jesus spent 40 days appearing to his disciples in all different ways, and over 500 people witnessed Jesus in his post-resurrection state, and after 40 days, he ascended into heaven, and he said, wait in Jerusalem until I pour out the, poor, the Holy Spirit upon you. And so that's what they're doing at this point, they're in Jerusalem, and they're waiting. Verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, there was an audible and a visible experience, right? Mighty rushing wind, divided tongues as of fire. The point is how dramatic of a moment, how important of a moment this was. It was this moment that God's people no longer had to suffer under the bondage of sin. They were filled by the Holy Spirit so they could put sin to death, they could walk in newness of life. And I would encourage you, if you are a follower of Christ today, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the ability to change. Things that you could not change on your own, things that you could not change about your family history can be changed because the power of God is at work in you. And I want you to notice that in this text, it says the Holy Spirit came and, and filled all of them, each of them, and each of them began to speak in other tongues. It didn't just fill the apostles, it filled every single disciple. You see, in order to grasp Jesus' vision for his church and for your life, you have to understand how personal it is. You have to understand how personal it is. Christianity is not a spectator sport, it's an all skate. Anybody remember skating ranks, you know? It's an all skate. It's like, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you get all of the Holy Spirit. You get just as much as I get, okay? It's not like I went to seminary and I graduated. They were like, congratulations, here's your Holy Spirit, you know? It's like, no, if you are a disciple, you get just as much Holy Spirit as everybody else. You have just as many, you have a spiritual gift that that God has given you and he wants you to use to build his church, to glorify his name. But this is pretty counterintuitive. Because I think a lot of American churchgoers, if you said, hey, how does God build his church? They'd be like, I don't know, like rock stars, like Billy Graham you know, are like pastors, or like people who are really super gifted. And certainly there are people that have unique gifts and, and have large platforms. But if you, if you look at the book of Acts, what you'll find is that God built his church in the first century, not through rock stars, but through ordinary people. You see, that the very first person to take the gospel out of Jerusalem, ordinary people, not the apostles. The very first person to share the gospel cross-culturally, ordinary person, not an apostle. The two most important churches in the first century, the church of Antioch and the church in Rome were planted by people that were so ordinary, we don't even know their names. It just literally says some brothers and sisters. It's like Deb and Bill. You know, it's like these guys that we don't even know planted these churches and they were the most important churches in the first century. You see, the normative way that God builds his church isn't through rock stars, it's through ordinary people. The normative way that God builds his church isn't through rock stars, it is through ordinary people. And here's the thing. When you experience the spirit of God working through you to change somebody else's life, you will never go back to spectator Christianity. Like when God works through you to restore a marriage that was on the brink of divorce and now they're happy and they're healthy and they're raising their children and all of a sudden there isn't heartache and pain in their family because God worked through you and you were there in that moment and you encouraged them with the word and you prayed for them and you served them and you got them involved in community, you'll say, I never want to go back to just showing up looking bored twice a month. Man, when God works through you to see your friend at work who is man, just debilitatingly depressed and full of anxiety and feeling lonely and feels like there's no hope, and God works through you, and you say, no, there is hope, and there are people that care about you, and there's a God that cares about you. Man, come get engaged with my missional community, and you see God change her life and give her a whole new outlook. You're like, I'm never going back to the look board two times a month Christianity. Guys, that is what God has for you. What he has for you is he has his spirit in you, he's given you gifts, and he wants you to use them in the world. He has so much more for us than just some version of Christianity where we show up a couple times a month, and we listen to somebody sing, and then we listen to somebody speak, and then we go home. Man, God wants to work through you and all the spheres of influence that he's given you to see his glory advance, and to see the lost saved, and to see lives put back together, and addictions broken, and families healed. And that is Jesus' vision for your church. And that's our vision for this church, that every single one of us would understand ourselves as a commissioned missionary to Charlottesville, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with his spirit, empowered for his mission. Okay, so that's what's happening. They're all uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. They're all speaking in other tongues. Well, what does that mean? That, that, That seems like an interesting phrase. Well, look at verse five. Verse five tells us. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language." So on Pentecost, Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem. It was, a, it was a significant religious holiday. And so there were Jews from all the nations of the earth who had traveled to Jerusalem were staying there for this uh, religious festival. And you know how it is when a lot of people come over to the house, right? It's like people are everywhere. It's like they're in the kitchen, they're in the living room, they're on the front porch, they're on the back deck, like people just everywhere. And that was Jerusalem. I mean, the houses weren't that big back then. So, I mean, just people were on stoops and people were on roofs and people were in the street. I mean, just kind of hang, hanging out. And remember, the Holy Spirit came with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. So so think like a tornado. And if you've ever heard a tornado, it's very, very loud. It's a kind of sound that attracts a crowd. So there's all these people from all the nations of the earth, they hear this crazy sound, and so they gather outside the house where the disciples were praying. And the text says that they were bewildered because they were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. They were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own heart language. It'd be like if a Chinese student came in here right now and heard me preaching in Mandarin, even though I don't speak Mandarin. That is what it means when it says that the the, the disciples started to speak in other tongues. And here's here's the big takeaway. You ready? The first time the gospel was preached, it was preached so that the nations could understand it. The very first time the gospel was preached, God made sure that there are people from all over the world, all different ethnicities, all different countries in Jerusalem, and that they could all hear it. You see, God is a global God. God has a global heart, which is why Jesus in the Great Commission said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That word is ethne. Go and make disciples of all different kinds of people. Man, not just one nation, one ethnicity, one culture, or one type of person. All nations. It's why today Christianity is the most diverse religion in the world. If you ask the question, hey, uh, where do most Muslims live? We know the answer, the Middle East. Or hey, where do most, where do most Hindus live? We know the answer, South Asia. Or where do most Mormons live? We know the answer, Utah, right? I'm not trying to be like disrespectful, it's just true. Like geographically speaking, that is true. You actually can't answer that question with Christianity. Roughly speaking, 20% of Christians live in South America, 20% live in North America, 20% live in Europe, 20% live in Africa, 20% live in Asia. Why is that? Because from the very beginning, God has been a global God. Here's a fun fact. Do you know who the nations were in Acts 2? (laughs) Y'all, Me, I mean, we were. unless you're a Palestinian Jew ethnically, you are the nations, right? And we are sitting here in North America today studying the scriptures of the Lord Jesus Christ because that first church took the gospel to the nations. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a missions-minded church. Man, a part of Jesus' vision for your life is that you'd be a missions-minded person, a globally-minded person, that you would have a heart for your neighbor and you'd have a heart for the nations. That, man, you would regularly pray for people around the world who have no access to the gospel, that you would give of your finances so that we can send missionaries like Jenna, who's leaving next Sunday on a plane for six months to go take the gospel to people in South Asia who have never heard it. And that you might say, God, why not me? That you might ask the question instead of saying, why should I go? Maybe you'd ask the question, why should I stay? I mean, people have access to the gospel around here. Why not use six months or two years or a couple years of your life to go take the gospel to people who have never heard it? And Jesus' vision for our lives is that we would be globally-minded people. Globally-minded people. All right, so all the people around, big crowd, they're hearing everybody speaking, verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, that's this crowd, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So here's the thing, guys. Anytime the spirit comes and the Gospels is preached, there's always a division. There's always people that hear it and say, I think this is true. And I'm convicted by this, and this is true, and I need to reorient my entire life about this. And there's always people that say they're just drunk. They're not seeing reality clearly. Religion is just an opiate of the people. It's an emotional crutch. It's a tool to impress your values on other people. God is a delusion. That's not a new argument. I mean, that's been happening for as long as there has been a church. That's what was happening then. So what did Peter do? I love this. First, Peter stands up and says, hey, look, we're not drunk. Always a good way to start a sermon. Promise, guys, not drunk, okay? Uh, We're not drunk. He says, uh, this isn't a psychological crutch. He says, this is the fulfillment of what God promised in the book of Joel. So what he does is he roots this thing that's happening in historical revelation. He says, this isn't out of nowhere. God has been promising this for thousands of years. Look at the book of Joel. This is what he said. And then I love this. Then Peter stood up and preached, I'm not kidding, the least seeker-sensitive sermon you have ever heard. Okay? This is what he said. You've been waiting for the Christ. Jesus proved to you in a multitude of ways that he is the Christ, but instead of following him, you crucified him. Well, guess what? God raised him from the dead. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to come back to judge you. That was Peter's, how you like that sermon? You say, I'm too direct. You know, it's like, that's what he did. And he's just like, here's the truth. We're all eyewitnesses to that. And what's amazing, it says, when the crowd heard it, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart, and they said, what shall we do? Man, they felt genuine conviction. And can I just, can I be candid with you for just a minute? Most of us want to be inspired, but what most of us need is to be convicted. Most of us want to be inspired, like, you know, you want me to tell anecdotes about my kids and, you know, tell you inspiring stories and give you, you know, liver shivers and goosebumps. And that's not all bad all the time. But, but here's the thing. If you want to become a convictional person, right, if you want to have deep beliefs that steady you in the midst of the storms of life, if you want to be the kind of man or woman Man, that others look at and say, man, he knows what he believes. She knows what he believes. He and she, they are walking the walk. If you want to be a convicted person, you have to be a convicted person. Does that make sense? Like, if you want to have convictions, you have to be convicted. Like, you have to look at the text and say, this is true. I've got to reorient my whole life around this. You've got to do the hard work of self-examination. We hate self-examination in our culture. We hate the idea that maybe actually we've been wrong and we actually have some things that we need to change. But what the scripture says, hey, until you're willing to examine yourself according to the truth of God's word, you'll never become the kind of person that's either able to weather the storms because you'll never have deep convictions. So Peter stands up, he preaches this, they're cut to the heart, they say, what shall we do? And in verse 38, Peter responded, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. So here's the thing. If the problem is out there, okay, if the problem is out there, then the solution is politics, education, or new systems. But if the problem is in here, in me, in my heart, then the solution starts with repentance. And what the scriptures say is that all the problems out there are a result of the problem in here. And so if we want to solve the problems out there, we actually need to start by solving the problem in here. We need to start with repentance. And repentance is a really hopeful word. Repentance means your life can be different. Repentance means you don't have to be the same next year that you are right now. Repentance means you don't have to be your dad again. Like, you can be different. You can be a new link in a a totally godly chain. You can start a history of generational faithfulness in your family. And repentance means change is possible. By the Holy Spirit, you can begin to change and you can begin to grow. And part of Jesus' vision for your life and my life and for our church is that we would be a repenting people. A repenting people. Because when a church is full of repenting people it becomes a very vibrant, attractive, welcoming place. Because do you know what is a really, really welcoming place? When everybody in that church is saying, look, I'm a sinner first and I'm sinned against second. That's an easy place to make friends. That's an easy place to be forgiven. That's an easy place to share your stuff. If everybody's just like, look, I'm a work in progress. I need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If everybody's living that way, then man, that's a very compelling community to be a part of. And that is Jesus's vision for our church. So Peter says, Repent. And then he says, be baptized, repent and be baptized. Baptism is how you go public with your faith. Baptism is how you go public with your faith. And baptism reminds us that our faith is personal, but it is not private. Okay, baptism reminds us that our faith is personal, but it is not private. And and this is very contra our culture. Because what our culture says is, hey, uh, faith is fine as long as you have it in your home and in your heart. But you can't bring your faith out into the public square. You can't talk about your faith. You, You need to keep it in your home, and in your heart. And, and what Jesus says is, no, actually, I want your faith to be very public. I want your friends and your coworkers and your family members to know that you are a follower of me. I want your faith to be public. And baptism is the first step in that process. It's the way that you go public with your faith at the beginning. And I know the topic of baptism is really, really intimidating to a lot of people. right? You might be here, and maybe you, you need to be baptized. You've never been baptized, but you're like, oh, that's a lot. Like, Get up in front of a bunch of people Share my testimony, get dunked in, a, in water. Ah, that's a lot, Josh. And I get it. I mean, I really do. Um, but I want to encourage you that, that sometimes you don't understand the power of your baptism. So a friend of mine uh, came to Faith in Christ at our church last spring. And uh, he was nervous about getting baptized. But he wanted to be faithful, and so he was like, all right, I'm going to do it. So he, you know, he scheduled it, and we were going to do it in, in July. And uh, so he invites his sister and his best friend to come to his baptism service. And they hadn't been to church service in like decades. Well, they come and, you know, he gets up here and he gives his testimony and we have the service and we baptize them. And uh, he didn't know, but God actually used his testimony in that service to save his sister and his best friend. And then we got to baptize them like three months later. So here's my question. What could God do with your obedience? All right, what, what could God do with your public testimony? We're going to actually get to baptize. We got to baptize in the first service. We're going to get to baptize again in this service. And man, I would just say, if that's, if that's something that you've never done before, we would love to start that conversation. Because God does amazing things when we take simple steps of faithfulness and we publicly profess him as our Lord and Savior. All right, so Peter says, repent and be baptized. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people were added to the church in a single day. You want to talk about some growth problems. It's like, we got to plant like 400 missional communities, you know? And like, who's going to work in the kids' ministry, right? Like, I mean, where are we going to park all these camels? I don't know. Like, what, you know, like what are you going to do? Talk about seating capacity issues. Anyway, um, so 3,000 people repent and believe the gospel. And here's what I want you to see in the language. You see what it says? It doesn't say they raised their hand. It doesn't say they you know, made a profession or, or whatever. It says they were added to the church. It says they were added to the church. You see, part of Jesus' vision for your life is that you would belong to a church. Part of Jesus' vision for your life is that you would belong to a church. Now, it is possible to be a Christian without belonging to a church, but it is abiblical, which means it is not in keeping with the biblical pattern. If you look throughout the New Testament, there isn't a single Christian who didn't belong to a church. The only possible exception is the Ethiopian eunuch, if you know that story, But tradition tells us he went to Africa and started the first church in Africa. So we got that worked out, right? It's just simply the pattern of the New Testament that every single Christian belonged to a church. You see, the ministry of the local church is the means by which, it's the means by which God grows you into maturity and helps you persevere in faith. So I've been in ministry for over a decade now and I've been a Christian for about 20 years. So I've I've gotten the, the opportunity to lead a lot of people to profess faith in Christ and I'm really grateful for that. But one of the saddest things that I've also seen in my life is a lot of those people have totally walked away from Christ and and aren't aren't pursuing him today. And as I look back over a decade and and I try to ask the question, what's the difference between those that are walking with Christ today and those that aren't? Do you know what the number one answer is? Local church. Those that got connected to a local church are the ones that are growing in Christ, walking in Christ, repenting of sin, being encouraged, sitting under the preaching of God's word. They're still going. And those who didn't most often fall away because God didn't design you to walk with Christ by yourself. And I know that it's countercultural. I know that American Christianity hates commitment. I know that millennials hate commitment. You're like, they don't even make me commit to my cell phone plan anymore, Josh. Like, I get it. The church might be the last place in the world that asks you to commit to something. Yeah, but that is Jesus's vision for your life. And hear me, it doesn't have to be center church. It really doesn't. But it needs to be a church. For your own spiritual good, it needs to be a church, a body of people that will walk with you and will help you grow in Christ. That's why we talk so much about the weekender. I know it's kind of like, they talk so much about the weekender. It's because we want to make it clear how you get connected here. We want to make it clear and simple how you can go from sitting in rows to belonging to the church because it really truly is the X factor in you growing in faith and persevering. Okay, so here's the summary of the the chapter so far. The spirit falls, the word is preached, the church is formed. So what did that first church look like? Okay, what character, characterized it? And by application and implication, what should characterize our church today? Well, I'll give you one word. Ready for it? Devotion. Devotion is what characterized that first church. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves. Highlight that word. Underline it. Circle it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The word devoted means to give all or a large part of your time or resources to a person, activity, or cause. To give all or a large part of your time or resources to a person, activity, or cause. Guys, the early church was devoted. They had what you might call a high commitment culture. And that is what we want to have in our church today. The reality is we're all devoted to something, right? It might be your kids. It might be your career. It might be class. It might be politics or home projects or personal fitness or, I don't know, hunting or CrossFit or some hobby that you have. We're all devoted to something. And isn't it true that you know what your friends are devoted to? You're like, bro, I know you drive a Tesla. Stop telling, you know, like, it's like everybody talks about what they're devoted to, right? And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to be devoted to me. I want, the, I want the majority of your time and your resources to be devoted to me. If your life is a solar system, Jesus wants to be the sun, And he wants everything else in your life to revolve around him. That's kind of the deal. That's sort of what Christianity is. It's like, hey, forgiveness of sin, eternal inheritance, son or daughter of God in response to Christ, in response to him being the center of it all. And guys, that's what we're after in this church. Man, we're after a high commitment culture. And to be really honest with you, I've talked to a lot of people who have said just like, ah, center church is too much for me. It's just too much for me. I don't I, I don't want to serve. I don't want to be in a group. I don't want to give. I just want to show up a couple times a month. I don't want you to call me to do anything. And now sometimes that's the statement. Sometimes I actually it's like get it. People are like, "Look, we're just busy. We've got kids. We have got stuff going on. We just like can't, you know, we can't do it." And I understand. It's I've got four young kids. I have a demanding job. I have a house to maintain. And my, the activities and academics and athletics in my kids' lives are only increasing. I'm like, how many soccer leagues can there be in Charlottesville? The answer is too many. Too many soccer leagues, okay? But I just don't know how else to understand verse 42. Like, how, like how else are we supposed to be faithful to the scriptures? I mean, it said that's what they were. They were devoted to one another. And honestly, how could you believe that God took on flesh? and died in your place rose again and is coming back to judge the living and the dead how could you believe that's true and not be devoted to it it's like in my mind you either believe that and you're devoted to it or you don't believe it you just get you just stop coming you know it's just like church isn't for me right but i I don't know where we kind of got this middle ground of like ah, i go to church like twice a month and it's sort of like this thing and it's like it doesn't really work that way it's like if this is true what we're this is crazy what we're talking about but it happened and if that's true we've got to orient our whole lives around that that's What they did then, that's what we want to do now. And just to be really practical, here's what that means. Being devoted to Christ doesn't mean you say no to everything. It just means that you say no or not now to some things so that you can say yes to the best thing. doesn't mean you say no to everything, but it does mean that you say no or not now to some things so that you can say yes to Christ and to his church and to growing in community. So they had a high commitment culture then, and we want to have a high commitment culture today. Okay, so... With our time left, I want to show you the two things that they were devoted to, okay? The two things, or two of the things that they were devoted to. Letter A, they were devoted to the word. They were devoted to the word. In verse 42, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching. So the apostles were entrusted with preserving and passing on the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. So they were devoted to that. We don't have the apostles today. We have the apostles' authorized accounts, the Bible. They were devoted to the scriptures then. Man, we are devoted to the scriptures today. Man, we are a Bible church. Okay, we just are. You've probably figured that out at this point. We are a Bible church, man. We preach the Bible. We sing the Bible. We pray the Bible here on Sunday. Then we scatter into groups and we study the Bible. If you're in a DNA group, you get up with two or three friends and you try to apply the Bible and encourage one another with the Bible. And that's what we want to help you do in your life. We want to help you be devoted to the word of God. Why? Because there is an intrinsic power in the word of God that can change your life. There just absolutely is. Jesus often described the word of God like a seed. He said, there's, there's a life force in a seed that is intrinsic, that if it gets into your life, it just starts to grow. So what would 2022 look like if you were devoted to the word of God? A little bit of vision for what could your life be? Well, um, I, you know, I, I think it might look like you having something to say to your friend who's really anxious. Like, oh man, like I've actually got, I've got a verse that I can encourage them with and I can, and I can pray for pray them for it. Maybe it looks like you being able to weather the storms of career and of relationships and of romance better because you're anchored in the promises of God. And all of a sudden, you don't feel so thrown about by the winds of your life, but you feel more steady and more anchored. And you're, man, I'm, I'm developing into a woman or a man of God who really is anchored in his promises. Um, you, you parents, maybe it looks like your son asking for a Bible because he sees you reading yours every day. And he just says, like, oh, this seems like it's really important. I, I, can I have a Bible? And just think about what, what God could do in your life if you were devoted to his word. Or ask it the other way, a little bit of counter vision. What will happen in your life if you're not devoted to his word? Well, the honest answer is you'll probably be the exact same person next year as you are right now. That's a little forward, but I mean, like, isn't that true? Like, I mean, like you'll be in the exact same place with anxiety, with impurity, with materialism, with, you know, loneliness, in marriage, with your kids. I mean, the the word of God is like the fuel in our car. I mean, it, it is like what gets things moving it's what gets things changing it brings the promises and the hope and the grace and sometimes the conviction of god into your life and it's how you change and so that's why as a church we want to help you grow it's why we have groups that meet all over town on different nights and different places to study the word of god we've got bible reading plans on our website so i'll preach the word of god every sunday because we want to be devoted to the word of god in the same way that they were okay so they were devoted to the word letter b they were devoted to one another they were devoted to one another Uh, Verse 42 says they were devoted to the fellowship. Now, when you read that, don't think about hobbits and don't think about a fellowship hall, okay? One of those was for the church people and one of those was for my nerds out there, okay? I'm with, thank you, Kara. I'm with you, Alan. Okay? I've read the Lord of the Rings five times, so come at me, all right? Um... (laughs) So don't think Havits, don't think Fellowship Hall. Um, think this, think meaningful community with other Christians. Think meaningful community with other Christians. In 2017, uh, former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murphy, said this, and he's not a Christian, he said this, we have a loneliness epidemic in America. He wrote, we live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. When you look at the data, you find that the reduction in lifespan for loneliness is similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Surgeon General. And some of you hear that and you say, that's me. And you say, that's why I'm here. Because I've, I just moved here for a program or a new job or school and I'm just, I just, I'm so lonely. I just don't have any friends. I don't know anybody. I don't have any meaningful relationships and I'm here. I'm not even sure what I believe about Jesus, but I just like need some relationships and I need to meet some people. Or maybe you say, that's somebody that I really care about. That's my neighbor. That's that's my younger sibling. That, you know, we just we know it. We feel it. And the good news is that the church has an answer for loneliness. It's Christian fellowship. The church has an answer for the loneliness epidemic. It's Christian fellowship. Because when a group of people unify around the gospel, it produces a radically fulfilling kind of fellowship. Man, where people are serving one another, loving one another, laughing together. It's not because everybody's exactly the same, but it's because we have something in common that's so significant that we're able to overcome all of our smaller differences. And the truth is, we all need fellowship. Man, we, we need people to suffer with us when life is hard. We also need people to celebrate with us when life is good. I mean, one of the, loneliness, one of the loneliest experiences in life is when something good happens and you don't really have anybody to celebrate with. Man, we need people with us in life. The first church was devoted to fellowship. That's why in verse 44, it says that they were selling their possessions and providing for one another's needs. That wasn't some sort of like forced communism. It was just an outworking of meaningful community. It's like, oh man, you know, this family has a need, so I'm gonna try to use some of my resources to help them. Or, oh man, this, this girl needs a place to stay for a couple months. You can stay in our spare bedroom. Or, man, this person doesn't have a car. Or, you can use my car and I'll use my spouse's car for that, you know, we'll work it out. That's, that's what it was. It was just the church, being uh, meaningfully connected to one another. And if you look carefully at uh, verse 42, hey, join me for like a Bible nerd moment, okay? Can we do that? Uh, In verse 42, you'll notice that the the definite article is used in each case. You notice that? Oftentimes we're like, why is the Bible so weird? But it's like the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. That's because those are all formal parts of the church's Sunday worship gathering. You see, in verse 43 through 47, we see the church doing organically during the week what they did formally on Sunday. What that means is that fellowship is about more than Sunday, but it's never about less than Sunday. Fellowship is about more than Sunday, but it's never about less than Sunday. 60 years ago, uh, the average Bible-believing American attended church an average of 12 times a month. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I have a, a friend in my missional community, he said, 12 times a month. I attended 16 times a month. We did Thursday afternoon, too. You know, I'm not saying you have to be here 16. I don't even have anything for you 16 times a month. <laughs> Right, the, the average Bible-believing American today attends church twice a month, from 12 to two. I mean, there's just a direct correlation between how often you gather with the church and how connected you feel to the church. There's a direct correlation about how strong you are spiritually and how often you gather with God's people, which is why one of the easiest ways you could grow this year is just simply be here more. Just make a commitment to say, church is now a rock in my schedule. I plan things around it. I'm gonna travel less so I can be in church more. If if, if you come twice a month, try coming three times a month. If you come once a month and you come twice a month, you've doubled your time in church. That's amazing, you know? And a special word here uh, to dads, uh, it is your job to get your family here. Like it just is. It's not your wife's job. It's not my job. It's your job. And one of the primary ways that you lead your family spiritually is finding and being committed to a healthy local church. And I sometimes talk to dads and I get kind of impatient because they're like, I don't know how to be a spiritual leader. And I'm like, yes, you do. You do. You can manage like a massive million dollar budget. You can have all these crazy hobbies, but you can't get your kids in the car and like bring them here on Sunday. You can, you just need to do it. And I I get that there's obstacles. I've got four kids and I get that Sunday, it feels like more craziness goes down on Sunday than any other day of the week. I get it. But we just have to say, this is important. I want my kids to actually see that this matters to me. Can I tell you something? Your kids don't listen to what you say that much. Okay, I'm a parent, trust me. You know what they do? They watch what you do. And you could say, like, Jesus is the center of our lives and the church really matters, but if you don't prioritize it, your kids are just going to assume, like, no, I don't think church really does matter. But if they see you being like, hey, it's been a crazy day, I'm tired, I don't want to go, but we're getting in the car and we're going, that's going to make a difference. And your kids are going to be like, man, this really matters to mom and dad. So practically speaking, man, just being devoted to being in church could be your action step for 2022. Second application of this is the importance of missional communities. And, you know, like I've said, we've got 14 that meet all around our community. We've got three more that are starting in the next month. As Pastor Justin said, we're going to have MC Connect right here after service next weekend. It is open enrollment season, okay? You can get into an MC, no questions asked, uh, right now. So maybe do that. Maybe that's your action step. Just come up and start the process, okay? So they were devoted to the Word. They were devoted to one another. What was the result? What was the result of this devotion? Well, look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the early, the early church wasn't tired. They weren't burned out. It says they, they were glad and had generous hearts. And that God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, when we devote ourselves to the word and to one another, we become very attractive to the world. When we devote ourselves to the word and to one another, we become very attracted to the world. Throughout history, churches and ministries have looked at verse 47 and have longed for that evangelistic effectiveness. And so what they've done is, is they've sought to create it through rallies and revival meetings and resources. And those things aren't bad, but what a lot of people miss about Acts chapter two is that it was the quality of the fellowship, not the quality of the programming that produced such evangelistic effectiveness. It was the quality of the fellowship It was people looking at this church and being like, I think God is in your midst. There are some really supernatural things happening. You are very different than any other community that I've ever seen. Martin Lloyd-Jones is an old preacher who studied biblical revival for his entire life. and, And this is what he concluded. His summary was, revival in the world begins with revival in the church. Revival in the world begins with revival in the church. He said, the problem is that we go out and we try to bring revival in the world, but we neglect the health of the church. And so people in the world look at the church and they're like, why would I want to be a part of that? And so our efforts in the world, no matter how well-intentioned, they, they fall flat. But Lloyd-Jones said, if we would devote ourselves to the health and the vibrancy and the growth of the local church, then our evangelistic efforts in the world would be much more effective. Guys, that's our vision, to be a devoted church that becomes a compelling community to those around us, just like Acts 2. But the question is, where do you get the energy to do that? Like, Where do you get the resolve to be devoted? Where do you find the strength to be that all-in for Christ? And by seeing how devoted Christ is to you. In speaking of devotion, the Apostle Paul said this in the book of Philippians, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The cross is the greatest act of devotion in history. Jesus didn't give the majority of his time and resources for you. He gave all of it. He gave his life, his blood, his righteousness, his relationship with the Father so that you could have it. And when that takes hold in your heart, it starts to change you, and it produces a desire for him. It produces devotion as a response. And you start to sound like the couple that I was talking to a couple months ago who came to faith in Christ at our church, and as a result, made some major life changes, like some dramatic life changes. And uh, when asked, hey, what motivated you to make such radical changes? They said, man, Christ died for us. How could we not live for him? Guys, that's, that's the thrust. That's the thrust of the Christian message. And you've been given so much in Christ and that we live in joyful response to that. So I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. Um, and I just want to give you a, a few moments to process one question. I mean, how is God calling you to be more devoted to him this year? And, and that's going to have as many answers as there are different kinds of people here. But how is God calling you to be more devoted to him in response to Christ's devotion to you? And our, our band is going to play some music so you can process that in just a minute. They lead us to respond.